Amen. All right. Good morning. So good to see you all. Um, well, quick word before we get started on the foundations class. Darren mentioned it's in the bulletin. Uh, really looking forward to that. Again, that's Tuesday nights starting June 12th from 6 to 7.30. We're going to do dinner, and that's for anyone who is new to the faith. So anyone who's like, man, I think I just kind of became a Christian or still kind of on the fence about what this whole Jesus thing is all about. It's a place to come and kind of learn the basics and hear about what it means to follow Jesus. But also if you've been in church for, for years and years, and maybe you don't feel like you have a firm foundation in the basics of the faith, uh, you are welcome to join us as well. Or it's possible you know someone who would fit into one of those categories and you'd like to, to bring them to participate. Again, we're going to do dinner and have uh, for about nine or ten weeks over the summer on Tuesday nights be there. So I just wanted you guys to be aware of that. We're really looking forward to that. Uh, with that, let me pray for us as we jump into the Word. Our Father, we thank you for your love and grace. Thank you for another Sunday to be together, gathered as the church, to worship you. God, you're so good and kind to us. Thank you for the work of Jesus on the cross to save us. And thank you for your word. Thank you for making yourself known to us and to the world. We pray that as we approach your word, uh, you would give us humble, open, teachable hearts to receive what is true about you and about ourselves. God, would you speak to us today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, go ahead and open up your Bible to the book of Jonah, chapter 4. It's the last chapter we have arrived, friends, the last hurrah of the book. Uh, if you haven't been with us, we've been walking through the book of Jonah just a little bit at a time. It's found in the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the words up on the screen for you. And while you're turning there, I want to know, how many of you have seen the movie Titanic? Yeah? Okay, good amount. A little Leonardo DiCaprio. No, a couple no's. Okay, if you haven't seen the movie, at least you probably know the story, right? Big boat going across the ocean, hits an iceberg, starts sinking, cold water, Pretty much everybody dies, and it's kind of a tragic tale, right? So let me ask you this. If you were watching the movie Titanic, and they found a way to fix the ship, would that be good news? How would you feel about that? You'd probably celebrate that. Yeah, it would be a boring movie. They would probably want to make the movie. But if you saw that happen, you'd think, wow, that's a, that's a good way to end this story. There's no destruction, uh, no one dies, everyone makes it to the other side, Leo and Kate, they get to live happily ever after in the States, it'd be a beautiful story, right? Would anyone be angry if they found a way to save the ship? Okay, I always have to check for sociopaths in the room. So most of us, most of us would celebrate that, right? When we see good things happening in the lives of others, or people avoiding destruction and damaging situations in their lives, we tend to celebrate that. We applaud them when people start making good decisions and kind of turn their lives around. We applaud them when they get out of uh, harmful situations, harmful relationships, poor life choices, and they start uh, on the right path, so to speak. We would say, right on. 
We're, we're, we're glad for them. Keep that in mind as we jump into Jonah. If you were here last week, remember how chapter 3 ended? It's a pretty miraculous act of repentance. The whole city of Nineveh repents as Jonah comes and he preaches this message from God about judgment and about condemnation that the city was wicked and sinful and God's judgment was coming upon them for it, but they repented. They turned to the Lord. We'll see it in chapter 3. It says this, after Jonah shares a very short message, it says, the Ninevites believed God and a fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth and when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. These are signs of repentance. And this is the proclamation that he, the king, issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. This was last week. Chapter 3. The entire city of Nineveh repents from the king down to the cows And everybody and everything in between seems to turn in some sense to the Lord and cry out to him. And God does not bring judgment and destruction upon the city. Although they deserved it for their sin, God shows mercy as they turn to him. Which reminds us, of course, of the gospel that is still true today. That as we recognize our sin and turn to Jesus in faith, we're forgiven, reconciled to God, shown mercy by God. Now, thinking back to our friend Jonah, surely this repentance, this response by the city of Nineveh, thousands upon thousands of people turning to the Lord, that surely would be cause for celebration. Right? Jonah probably is pretty happy about that. They've, they've heard his message. They've responded in faith. I mean, the ship was sinking. The Titanic was going down, and it was saved. And the people were saved and spared from destruction. Let's let's celebrate this, right? Surely Jonah's a happy guy. But that's not what we see. As chapter 4 begins, we see these words. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. Angry? We're talking about one of the greatest... Uh, instances of repentance in all of Scripture and possibly all of human history. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people turning from their sin, crying out to God, turning from their evil ways, avoiding destruction, saved from judgment, and the prophet, the servant of God, the man of God, is angry. Maybe your translation says it displeased Jonah exceedingly. The Hebrew actually uses the word evil. It was exceedingly evil to Jonah to see this. So looking back on the events in the city of Nineveh and their repentance, he doesn't even think it's neutral. It's not just a shoulder shrug. Okay, no, he he sees it as evil. 
this is not what we would expect at all. It's as if Jonah is watching Titanic and he's rooting for the ship to sink. He wants it to go down. We hit an iceberg. Yes, fantastic. There's not enough lifeboats. Yes, good. It's filling our ship with water. We're going down. Awesome. He wants destruction and judgment to come upon these people. And we see this in his prayer as the passage continues, verse 2. So he prays, he's angry, and he prays, Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So we say, ah, the truth comes out. We can clearly see Jonah's heart. Remember what happened in chapter 1? God says, go to Nineveh. And he says, nope. Go in the opposite direction to Tarshish. Now we see why. I wasn't scared. I wasn't lazy. No, he says, I fleed because I knew your heart, God. I knew that I would go there and you would forgive these people. And I didn't want any part of that. That's what I tried to stall by running away. And he repeats this description of God that's famously seen in the book of Exodus, chapter 34, but it's also seen throughout the Old Testament, describing God as, as what? Gracious, compassionate, slow to anger. Slow to anger. We talked a lot about judgment last week, but God is not quick to judgment, quick to wipe Nineveh off the face of the earth. He's slow to anger, patient, allowing them time to repent. And they do. He's abounding in steadfast love. This is his loyal, faithful, persistent love that God has for the world. Saying this is who God is. And and usually when we see this description of God, it's reason for, I don't know, praise, celebration, recognizing how good and faithful and worthy of our worship God is. But here, when Jonah talks about God and his heart and what God is really like, it causes him to get angry, furious. And you notice, this is Jonah's second prayer in the book. Remember when his first prayer came? Chapter 2. He's in the belly of the fish, prays out to the Lord. And what is this prayer there? It's It's a prayer of gratitude, praising God for rescuing him from death scooping him up with a fish and spitting him back out on dry land. He's, he's grateful to have been saved from death and rescued. And so now, in Jonah's second prayer, he's looking at the saving work of God, the rescuing work of God for the people of Nineveh, but he's angry about it. So you see him caught in this inconsistency, right? Where he celebrates the grace of God for himself, but when he sees the grace of God for others, he gets mad. What's going on in Jonah's heart? I think for Jonah and for us, Nineveh really represents two different types of people. It's hard for Jonah to love. People that are hard for us to love or to want good things for. Two types of people. The first type of person is those who have hurt us. 
Right? Jonah doesn't want the people of Nineveh to be forgiven. He doesn't want them to receive God's grace. Think about who we're talking about. Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, foreign nation, enemies, violent, cruel. Without a doubt, they had caused harm and wounds to people that Jonah knew, people in their history for, for decades. They'd been wounded at the hands of Nineveh. Their families have been affected by these people. They were brutal. They'd kill you. They'd kill your whole family without winking an eye. So Jonah says, these people deserve punishment for what they've done. I don't want them to receive mercy. I think maybe that reflects our hearts today as we think about who is your Nineveh. We saw that question in the first chapter a few weeks ago. We revisit it now. Who is your Nineveh? Who are those people that have hurt you, that you find it hard to want to extend grace towards? Those who have excluded you, shamed you, spoke ill of you, abused you, wronged you. Maybe people in your family, maybe it's your parents, maybe it's your kids. You're still wounded from an argument with your spouse. Maybe there's bitterness in your heart towards your spouse. There's bitterness in your, in your heart towards someone in this church. Where there's unresolved tension. There hasn't been reconciliation from conflict that's taken place. And that bitterness stays in our hearts and it makes it hard for us to want good things and God's grace and God's love for people that have hurt us. So I think we can relate to Jonah here. Because he's not just watching the Titanic about people he didn't know, had no experience with. It's much more personal than that. It's much more personal for us. The people of Nineveh also represent a second group of people, though. And it's those that we feel morally superior to. See, the people of Nineveh weren't just enemies. I mean, they were objectively sinful. They didn't follow the ways of God. They didn't obey God's laws. They were violent. They were wicked. And so Jonah has this internal sense of, of justice, of right and wrong, that they have clearly violated. And sure, Jonah had sinned in his own ways, but not, not as bad as them. Not like them. See, it seems like Jonah has this sliding scale where some of us sin, but it's forgivable, but some people, they've just gone too far. Whether they've sinned in certain ways or certain amounts, they've crossed the line. God's grace is no longer available. Justice must be done. Strict justice must be observed. See, when we feel morally superior to people, there's a sense that, well, we've kind of earned it. We've mostly kept God's law. We mostly obey, sure, here and there we mess up. But we're pretty much good to go. And we've earned a spot in the kingdom, more or less. But the people that do wrong, well, they get what's coming to them. That's how it works. So as Jonah sees God's grace and God's forgiveness for the people of Nineveh, I mean, his, his worldview is coming apart. His, his sense of right and wrong and justice, these categories he has in his mind, they're, just, they're being undone as God's showing him, my grace doesn't work the way you think it does. 
Jonah doesn't know what to do with it. There's this uh, Hindu professor of European history. I read the story about him. He was, he was teaching on the Reformation. Back in the 1500s, the great reformers, Pro, uh, Martin Luther, who uh, re-centered on, you could say, re-not discovered, but looked to the scriptures and saw so clearly the, the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. It was not from our works it's not our effort or what we do that makes us right with God. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. The doctrine that we as good Protestants still celebrate today. It's there laid out in the scriptures. But this, this teacher, this professor was explaining it kind of impartially and then offered his own take on what he thought about it, on what salvation by faith means. And he said this, he said, it's completely ridiculous and absurd. It's meaningless. Faith is nothing. Salvation comes by how you live. Faith is nothing. Salvation comes by how you live. It's what you do or don't do, not what you believe or who you believe in. It's all about your actions. He said this whole grace stuff, it doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. There are laws in our world And if you break them, there are consequences. Good people get good things. Bad people get bad things. That's how it works. So I think for that professor and for so many of us today, we struggle with grace because of that. It doesn't add up. It doesn't always make sense. Right? But yet God is showing that his love and forgiveness is not earned and his grace and mercy is for those that do not deserve it. And that's the heart of the gospel. That's what Jonah's struggling to to get his head around. So again, who is your Nineveh? Who is your Nineveh? Who are the people that God loves but you honestly don't like? Who are the people that sin worse than you? Worse than you? Who are the people that sin differently than you? The people that you push out, you keep on the fringes rather than saying, yeah, there's room for you here. Jonah continues because of this. Now, Lord, verse 3, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. If they're going to receive grace, I'd rather die. Talking about his life, a life, remember, that was spared and rescued from the bottom of the sea. A life that God restored and brought up and spit back out on land. He's saying, I don't want that life anymore, God, if this is how you operate. I mean, it's almost comical how off his emotions are in this whole exchange. I think that's part of the point. God looks at him, verse 4, replies, is it right for you to be angry? He could have said a lot of things in that moment. He asked him a question, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Is this really how you should be feeling about all of this? passage continues. Verse 5, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, waited to see what would happen to the city. So Jonah's still sulking. He, he heads outside of the city, east of the city, sets up a little campground, you know, pitches a tent, and 
gets his little campfire going, breaks out his little pack of s'mores supplies, and just kind of wants to camp out and see what's going to happen to the city. And it's almost as if he's holding out hope. You know, maybe, maybe God really is going to bring destruction. Let's just get a front row seat and kind of, kind of watch what unfolds here for the city of Nineveh. But what happens next, again, shows God's incredible patience and kindness. Because let's be honest, at, at this point, God really could just wipe his hands clean of Jonah and be done, right? I mean, we're kind of done with Jonah, right? If, you're, if you've been here for, you know, the past several weeks in this study, aren't, aren't we kind of just over Jonah? Like, Jonah, we're, we're just, we've run out of patience with you, Jonah. You're, you're just cranky and you're hard-hearted and you don't get it. You're, you're a punk. And so, God, can you just come and just karate chop this clown, get him off the stage? Can we go back to the Gospel of Mark? I'm just kind of done with Jonah, right? I want to unfriend him on Facebook, unfollow him on Instagram, stop seeing his posts. Like, it's just, it's enough. You know, God's looking at him like, you ran away from me in chapter one. Then I sent this storm and you didn't even respond to me in the storm. I had to get tossed into the sea by the sailors. And the sailors, those pagan guys, remember them? They were more responsive to me than you were. Then I rescued you and spit you back on dry land. And you, you go to Nineveh kind of reluctantly and, and kind of give them the message I want, but you kind of leave out a lot of things too. And now you're mad, you're angry at me for, for giving grace to people that I want to give grace to. I mean, I'm, I'm God, remember? I can kind of do what I want. And, and here you are, Jonah, pointing the finger. And so it's like, Jonah, done. But that's not how God responds. God responds with this lesson he wants to teach Jonah, creatively, patiently helping Jonah see the truth. See what he does in the text. It says, then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed up the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die again and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. All right, so what's going on here? Jonah's hanging out at his campsite. He's got the graham cracker and the Hershey's on, his mallow is still in the fire. He's waiting, ready to enjoy his s'more when God steps in. And he provides what? A plant. Okay, and this plant kind of springs up and gives Jonah some shade that he was needing. And he's, you know, more comfortable now in this hot Middle Eastern climate. And this made Jonah very happy, exceedingly happy, very happy the passage says, which aren't aren't we so happy for Jonah that he's finally happy. He's not happy that this city of over 100,000 people repent and turn to the Lord, but he's happy because he's he's got a little shade on his poor, hot little head. Jonah, thank goodness. But then God provides or sends a a worm that kind of eats the plant, makes the plant wither, and Jonah's shade is gone. We say, oh, oh. Poor Jonah. His shade's gone. And then God sends a a wind and some sun, and it beats down on Jonah's head so that he's uncomfortable, he's hot, and he's he's tired, and he he wants to die again. Another death wish from our dear friend Jonah. 
before we get to the meaning of this whole plant and worm and uh, wind incident, notice with me the hand of God so sovereignly at work in the life of Jonah. Do you see it in the text? God provides the plant. Then God provides the worm. Then God provides the east wind and the sun comes. If you remember in chapter 1, it was God who sent the storm and God who appointed the fish in chapter 2 and God who spoke to the fish in chapter 2 and had it spit Jonah out and it was God in chapter 1, verse 1, whose word came to Jonah to initiate this whole series of events. So over and over again, God speaks and sends and provides and provides and provides. And over and over again, we see the hand of God on Jonah's life. His fingerprints are all over this story. It's a reminder to us that even when we don't see it, even when we don't understand the events of our lives, we see God's hands at work, teaching us, growing us, accomplishing His purposes in our lives and in the world. God is sovereignly at work at all times, even if we don't notice it. So, that being the case, what do we have to learn from this plant, worm, wind incident? God responds in verse 9. God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Right? Jonah has a death wish. God, same question. Is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? Jonah responds, it is. He said, I'm so angry I wish I were dead. Yet another death wish from Jonah. I feel bad. I'm being really harsh on Jonah today, aren't I? Yeah. God brings it home, though, in verse 10. The Lord said, You've been concerned about this plant, Jonah. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and it died overnight. He's like, Jonah, you finally showed some care and some compassion, not for people, but for this little plant that was giving you shade. And by the way, it popped up overnight. It was gone overnight. You didn't do anything to cultivate the life of this plant. You didn't water this plant. You didn't fertilize this plant. You didn't prune this plant. You did nothing to invest in the life of this plant. You had nothing invested in it. And yet, you're, you're sad and concerned that now it is gone. So then right after that, he's going to drive home his point. This is the last verse of the book, and it's the whole point of the book. It's, it's the heart of God on display, what he wants us to see from all of the book, chapters 1 through 4, summed up right here. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? Shouldn't I, Jonah, have concern on the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? Another way of saying they're lost. They're morally lost. Shouldn't I have concern, compassion on them? And also many animals, by the way. And so the book just ends with this question. These are the last words. We don't see how Jonah responds. We don't know what comes next. It's just this kind of lingering question in our ears. Should I not have concern? Or maybe your, your translation says have pity or have, have compassion on these people. Should I not have compassion on the great city 
of Nineveh. Jonah, you care so much about this plant, this little insignificant plant. It was here today, gone tomorrow. You invested nothing in it. How much more then should I have compassion on these people? Thousands and thousands of people who were made in my image, men and women who I deeply love with eternal realities at play. That's why I've titled the series, Big Fish, Bigger God. This book of Jonah is not about the fish, really. It's not even about Jonah, really. It's about God. It's about his heart, his heart for the world, his heart for the nations, his heart for, for those that are lost, and his heart, his heart for us. So Jonah, what's, what's more important, the plant or, or the people? I found myself kind of reflecting on this passage this week in preparation for today, and when you spend time with the Word, it makes you a little uncomfortable. It exposes your heart if you, if you let it. And I found myself reading this and, and seeing how much I can relate with Jonah and his complacent heart. You notice how, how much he cared about this plant? I was like, that, I do that. Not with, I'm not a gardener. I don't actually, I'm not a horticulturalist out there with, with plants and such. But plant, it, it represents what? The, the temporary, the, the insignificant, that which doesn't last, that which is cheap and here today, gone tomorrow. It's so much of our lives are, are caught up in paying attention to those things. I saw that in my own heart, how much I care about sports, which I care a lot about sports and, and entertainment and how much we talk about Netflix or, or spend time watching Netflix or, or looking for comfort in life and vacation and entertainment of various kinds. It's just so much of our mental energy goes towards those things. We get worked up about those things that aren't lasting. When God tells us to have a heart for, for people, for real people that don't know Jesus, that have a Christless eternity ahead of them if they don't hear, if they don't respond. I thought, how many of us are like Jonah? How many of us care more about the plant than, than the people that we're called to love and, and serve and share the gospel with? How many of us are caught up in, in vacations and in sports and in entertainment, and things that don't last when there are eternal things that God has placed before us. I think this is the reason sometimes we grow stagnant in our faith as a church. I think this is the reason a lot of young people sometimes leave the church, because we don't, we don't put before them a vision that's, that's bigger than themselves. We don't put before them a mission that's, that's worthy of their lives. The call of Christ we make it easy. They just, if life's really about you, just kind of add a little Jesus here. That's not the call of Christ. So when we see that, we don't, it doesn't motivate us. It doesn't challenge us. It doesn't call us to engage with our whole lives. But when we see the heart of God on display and his invitation to join him in his work for his glory, in the world, that's worth everything. It's worth absolutely everything that we have. And so I don't know what you need to do in response to this today, in response to 
the passage, but I encourage you to, to think about that, to reflect on that. One, one step, one thing you could do, join us for prayer. Thursday mornings in my office, 6.30. I know it's early, but I don't care. We're going to be there, and I would invite you to come and pray with us. Pray for our city. We're going to be praying intentionally that, that people who don't know the Lord would come to know him, that God would do a work in people's lives, that we could love our city and, and share the gospel. We'd love to have you there with us. Sometimes our, our hearts grow cold, so we need to seek the Lord in prayer. But God, would you give us a heart like yours? God, would you give us a heart that loves people the way you do? Would you join me for prayer on Thursday morning here? Maybe the step for you needs to be, man, we need to be more intentional with our neighbors, with our coworkers. Invite them over. We've been meaning to invite them over. just haven't found a date yet. Get a date on the calendar or make a phone call that you've been meaning to make and waiting maybe to share the gospel with a friend or a family member for the right time. Maybe now's the time. Give them a call. Tell them about your love for the Lord, about his love for them. Maybe it's something you need to do with, with your money. I don't know, maybe there's a, a vacation coming up, a new purchase coming up that's maybe not something that you really need, but maybe you, you want. Maybe you could instead take that money and give it away to someone that needs it. Give it away to church planters in other parts of the world, people that are taking the gospel to unreached peoples. You say, man, rather than doing this thing that we don't really need, what if we gave that money and had a kingdom impact? Wouldn't that bring great joy? Wouldn't that be a something to celebrate that our family participate in, this kingdom work. I don't know what this needs to look like for you, but God says, shouldn't I have compassion on the great city of Nineveh? The answer is, of course you should, Lord, and so should we. All this talk of God's compassion for people, of course, points us forward to the New Testament, to the cross of Christ. The book of the Old Testament here, Jonah, but it points us to Jesus, doesn't it? To God's heart for the world, to that verse that we all know so well, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Amen. That's the gospel that we celebrate every week, every week, but it doesn't get old. God so loved the world. His compassion was for the world that he sent his son, that if we would believe in him and his work on the cross, he died for us. He took the punishment, the judgment, the condemnation for sin upon himself. See, the reality is we, we're all Nineveh. We're all worthy of judgment because of our sin, but God in his love said, you do not have to bear the consequences of sin if you would trust in the work of Jesus as he died for us so that through faith and the grace of God we could be saved and, and reconciled to God and adopted into his family and given his spirit and, and new life and eternal hope with him. Not just a vague sense of God's grace and God's love, but God's grace and God's love shown in the cross shown in the person and work of Jesus Christ to save sinners. So I pray here this morning that if you're here and you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ for the first time, I pray that 
you would respond to him in faith, recognizing your sin and your need and calling out for, for mercy from God. He loves you so much. And if you're here this morning and you, you're already walking with the Lord, would you be reminded of God's grace, God's love for the city of Nineveh, God's love for the Bay Area, God's love for the world? I would encourage you to not be like Jonah and instead to love those people as well. Let's pray. Now, our Father, we thank you again for your grace, for your love. Thank you for loving us so much. It's amazing. God, we don't deserve it. We can't earn it, and yet you love us. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us, for dying for us. Help us, Lord, to see your heart clearly and to have hearts that match yours. We love you, Lord, and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.